Support for this podcast comes from ODC Dance. The world-class company returns for Dance Downtown, March 27th through the 31st, with two electrifying programs and five works, springing from cartoon, the news, and human connection. ODC.dance slash downtown. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions, online or through Star One's mobile app. Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, this is Forum. I'm Nina Kim. Governor Gavin Newsom said he's lifting California's COVID-19 state of emergency at the end of February, citing low COVID-related hospitalizations and deaths. But a rise in cases in Europe could mean another winter surge for the U.S., and mounting signs of a bad flu season could further strain hospitals. Add to that, uptake of the new bivalent booster has been low, even in California. We get the advice of UCSF's Dr. Bob Wachter and hear from you. Have you gotten the new booster yet? Why or why not? Join us after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. For the past two years, colder temperatures have brought a rise in COVID cases. And this year, we could be dealing with what some have called a triple-demic of COVID, a wave of flu cases, and of a respiratory illness called RSV. So for more on what this winter may bring, now that there are few restrictions in place and travel and gatherings ahead, and how best to protect ourselves and others, UC San Francisco's Dr. Robert Wachter is with us. Dr. Wachter, so glad to have you back on Forum. Thank you, Mita. Always a great joy to be with you. So first, why are people predicting a bad flu season? What are the signs? Well, we get a hint of what the flu season is going to be like by looking at the Southern Hemisphere, which has their winter when we have our summer. And they had a a flu season that was worse than they've had over the last few years. And the early signs in the United States are that it's going to be somewhat worse than we've experienced in the last few years, whether it's a truly terrible flu season or just a medium flu season, but one that's worse than we've experienced the last couple of years, I think is a little bit up in the air. Um, You know, clearly the last couple of years have been a very benign flu season for us, in part because everybody's been careful about COVID and the things that you do to be careful about COVID are the same things you would do to be careful about the flu. So we'll have to see a lot of, we're being reminded that flu is a pretty bad disease. And uh, and if we do have a bad flu season, there are a lot of people that will get sick, will be out of work, and a fair number of people that will die. And the average year in the United States, about 30,000 people die of the flu. So that's it's clearly a bad disease that we haven't paid enough t- attention to, but COVID has put it back on our radar. Yes. Is this year's flu shot effective against it? Uh, we're, we're, we're learning as we go along. The flu shot is reasonably effective. It's not perfectly 100% protective, but on the average year, it's 50 to 70% protective against the flu and against severe outcomes uh, from the flu. And so uh, there is no question that, that people who, uh, older people and kids should get 
of flu shot. It's recommended that people over 65 get a higher dose flu shot that's better protective, uh, uh, provides better protection for older people. Uh, it's not 100% protective. And so, you know, the same kinds of behaviors that we've been used to to be careful about COVID, if you think about going into the winter uh, and you're sort of on the fence about masking, for example, in crowded indoor spaces, the risk of flu might put you over the fence and say, well, it's actually worth doing not only to protect myself against COVID, but also to protect myself against the flu. Yeah. And and now we're hearing also about RSV and a lot of little ones getting sick with it. We're hearing that it's straining pediatric hospitals already in several states. What is RSV and why are kids getting sick? Just a different virus, respiratory syncytial virus, one that Again, we're paying more attention to viruses that I think flew mostly below our radar screen prior to COVID. We're all now more sensitive to the idea that viruses can be nasty and can harm people and in some cases kill them. RSV has a particular predilection for younger kids. In some ways, we were lucky with COVID that that it you know the flu can hit older people, but also hit young people. COVID tended to be uh, much more aggressive in older people and relatively benign, although not completely benign, in kids. RSV is a disease mostly of kids. There is no vaccine that's available yet for RSV. Uh, and so it's something, we, another thing we have to keep our, our eye on. I think, you know, my guess is that the flu season and the RSV season will be not that atypical compared to what we were used to three, four, five years ago, maybe in a bad flu or RSV year. It's just that, you know, our antennae now are very, very different as it comes to thinking about viruses and their impact on the population and, and the risk. Is it also the fact that if you have a bad flu, RSV, and then add to that COVID, which you will see hospitalizations, I understand in California, they're plateauing after a significant decline as far as cases go, that that's also what's causing fear among some people, especially at hospitals, to, to be worried that they could be swamped? Yeah, I think that's an important point. And, and, and not that we're all that worried that any one individual is, you know, when, when I, the Times article yesterday talked about the trifecta, it's not that we're all that worried unless you have really, really bad luck that you as a single person will get RSV, flu, and COVID at the same time. It's just that the winter tends to be a time that hospitals already get filled with patients with, for example, the flu. In a bad year, you know, a place like UCSF, which tends to run quite full anyway, if all of a sudden you have an additional 30 or 40 or 50 people in the hospital because of the flu, uh, now we're very packed. And then if COVID has a surge at the same time, you begin hitting hospital capacity numbers that are scary, that, you know, do we really have enough beds and ventilators, things that we had to think of a lot in 2020. I doubt that COVID will be, we'll see that much of a COVID surge that by itself, it will stress hospitals. Uh, obviously, all bets are off if there are new variants, but at least based on what we know now, I think we're tending to expect a moderate uh, COVID surge. But if you have a moderate COVID surge, that leads to more hospitalizations. And on top of that, a flu surge. And then on top of that, if you're a children's hospital, you're starting to see an RSV surge. Then you can we can find ourselves in a situation where the hospitals just don't have enough beds, enough ventilators, enough doctors and nurses. And then on top of that, if doctors and nurses are out because they're sick, that makes things even worse. Yes. We're talking with Dr. Bob Walker, professor and chair of the Department of Medicine at UC San Francisco about what's in store for us with cold flu and, and of course, 
COVID. Why do you think that we'll have a moderate one, that won't be a bad year for COVID or a significant surge like we saw last winter or the winter before? Well, let me give the the usual caveat, <laughs> which is now <laughs> now that I've learned that you people tape these things and can play them back <laughs> six months later, I, I've learned to be a little careful. I mean, all bets are off if there is a much, much nastier variant that emerges. And that's always possible. You know, before Delta emerged, you may remember, you know, uh, President Biden's famous press conference that was sort of the mission accomplished. We're, we're in good shape. And then Delta hit. And then last a year ago, November, we were looking in like we were in pretty good shape and then Omicron hit. And so if a new variant comes out of the blue and it is markedly more infectious and markedly more immune evasive and markedly more uh, uh, serious, then we could have a terrible uh, winter. But the last six months have really been characterized in COVID by their relative stability. The, the, the variant that we had, BA5, once it came became a thing in April or May, has really been pretty stable. There are a few new variants on the horizon that probably will take over for BA5, are moderately more immune evasive than BA5, but they come from the same lineage. They're still versions, they're still flavors of Omicron. So our vaccination and or our infection-related immunity is, it looks like it's still going to work at least moderately well. Mm. Uh, everybody at this point has some immunity. There's nobody um, probably in the world that has no immunity either from vaccines and boosters and or infections. And so if you have a you have the uh, winter effect of people going indoors. There's actually no evidence that COVID, that the virus itself is seasonal the way the flu is. But the reason we tend to see something of a surge in the winter is people change their behavior and tend to go inside. So there's that. On top of that, if we do have a new variant that is moderately more immune evasive than the one than BA5, then if you put that all together, we'll have a mild to moderate surge. It's possible it'll be worse, but I tend to, I tend to doubt it. Now, part of the reason that that I'm not sure is there was another factor that used to happen in the old days, and by the old days I mean a year ago, two years ago, is people might start being a little bit more carefree, might ditch the mask, might go inside for to the bar or to eat dinner, and then when there were signs of a surge, they'd bring the mask out again. And they'd say, hmm, this is scary. I'm hearing that hospitals, hospitalizations are upticking and I'm going to become more careful. Will people go back to being more careful or are people completely over it? And, you know, they are so wedded to the idea that they just don't want to think about COVID anymore. I, it's hard to know. I'd say mm -hmm. in the Bay Area, my guess is the Bay Area has been so responsive to the science uh, that certainly a lot of people have ditched the mask. I'm guessing if we're seeing a moderate to significant surge, people will pull the mask out of the drawer and start wearing it again. We'll start being more careful about indoor, uh, crowded indoor gatherings. I think there are other parts of the country where the masks are gone and, and people will not respond in the way they did previously. And that response was partly why surges only reached a certain point then they usually came down because people started becoming more careful. So that whole behavioral change factor, I think, is a big unknown at this point. Yeah, well, you know, that's a good question for our audience, whether or not if cases go up or there seems to be some signs uh, that masking would be a good idea, whether or not 
they would put it back on if they have ditched it as a result of few requirements, no longer a mandate, and so on in place. So listeners, uh, what what are your thoughts? How are you thinking about COVID for this winter? What are you monitoring? Or are you just trying to forget about it and finally have uh, your first COVID thought free <laughs> winter. <laughs> Regardless, you can tell us by emailing forum at kqed.org, posting on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at KQED Forum, or by giving us a call at 866-733-6786. Of course, you can also ask Dr. Walker your questions as well about COVID or flu or even RSV. He can handle them all. Uh, just to get a sense already, Matthew writes, I got my bivalent booster as soon as I was able. And yes, listeners, tell us if, if you have gotten the latest booster, and if not, why not? But Matthew has gotten it, and Matthew continues, I still wear my mask whenever I am at the grocery or in crowded indoor areas. As someone who has had both parents sick multiple times with the virus and put in the hospital, I think it is a civic duty to not only protect myself, but my fellow citizens. And uh, David writes, we all know previous vaccines have not prevented infection, rather only lessened the severity of symptoms. Does the bivalent shot offer any protection against infection since it is more customized to the current strains? Um, any thoughts quickly for David before our break about, yeah. Sure. I mean, first of all, I'm glad people are getting it. Unfortunately, relatively few people are getting it. Nationally, it's about 10% of people who've gotten the bivalent booster. It does decrease the probability of infection, not as well as the 90% that we remember when the first vaccines came out a you know, year and a half ago, but probably 60 to 70%. The question is how long that lasts. The mm. prior boosters only lasted, in terms of their protection against infection, for two months. We're hoping that this booster lasts for longer than that. But the main value of the booster is protecting, protection against severe infection. That's the main reason. And long COVID, we can talk about later, but uh, that's the main reason to get the, the vaccine and the booster. Yep. Lots to talk about. More after the break. Stay with us. This is Forum. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, Tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Here's what we're talking about tomorrow. Martha Gonzalez describes herself as an artivista, someone who combines art and Chicana activism. We'll talk with the 2022 MacArthur Fellow and frontwoman of the East L.A. band Quetzal about how she uses song and dance to connect people across borders. 
Today, we're joined by Dr. Bob Wachter, professor and chair of the Department of Medicine at UCSF, about what this winter may bring as far as COVID goes. This year's relative optimism that we won't see the COVID surges of the last two years, they're being tempered a bit by concerns about a wave in flu and RSV cases and on studies on the prevalence of long COVID and more. You, our listeners, are invited to ask the doctor your questions. Also, we're curious if you have gotten the latest booster, and if not, why not, given the fact that uptick... Uh, uptake, I should say, has been quite low. Also, just curious how you're thinking about handling this winter and whether or not uh, case rates and so on will have you masking in some situations, avoiding crowds or so on. Email forum at kqed.org, post your thoughts on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram, or call us 866-733-6786. And we've got John in Palo Alto. Hi, John. Hi, Dr. Walker. I certainly wish that you and the programs like this could possibly be different than most people and not keep repeating what someone like me has heard so many times before. You have not said anything that I haven't heard many times before. Now my question, I have long COVID. I've had it for two and a half years. Among all the other changing things that it does for me, it causes a lot of mucus on my eyes. So I was gonna ask, can COVID cause mucus to keep my eyes shut? Well, I already know the answer, it can, and uh, so the question is, uh, how could it do that? Uh, okay, John, thanks <laughs> for the question. Dr. Walker? Yeah, that's a symptom I have not heard before. And uh, I would worry uh, or wonder at least about something else in terms of keeping eyes shut. That often makes me wonder about uh, a conjunctival infection, which is uh, treated with uh, with antibiotic drops, but definitely worth taking a seeing a doctor. It's a, an important point about long COVID that there's no blood test, no X-ray that can tell you whether you have long COVID, and so we are seeing a fair number of people who think they have long COVID, but there's another diagnosis. So it's important if you have symptoms. Let's say you have you know continued. Um, uh, problems with your thinking or, or terrible fatigue or shortness of breath, it's important that you see a doctor and make sure that, in fact, it is long COVID. Long COVID is, is very real. There are a lot of people with symptoms of long COVID. It's possible that John does have a symptom of long COVID. It's also important to check out and be sure that it really is long COVID and not something else. Well, thanks, John, and sorry for what you're going through related to your eyes. Let me go to caller Barbara next in San Francisco. Hi, Barbara. Oh, hello. Good morning. I've had uh, four four COVID shots, and I'm, I'm destined to get the fifth one um, next week. Um, I've heard, though, and I'm going to get it no matter what, what your answer is, <laughs> I've heard from a couple of people whom I know that the day after they, they get this latest booster, that they uh, get headaches and elevated temperature and just feeling just plain lousy. And I'm just mm -hmm. wondering what is going on here in terms of their response to it. I'm sure mm. there's a medical explanation for that. It's worth it. They felt better the second day. Right, right. I, I, there's, there's actually no great evidence that the response to this new bivalent booster in terms of the side effects that people sometimes have after the shot is all that worse than the prior boosters. In many ways, it's it's the same shot 
half of it is the same shot, half of it is a shot that's been sort of minimally rejiggered to be more active against the variant that, that's in play, BA5. Um, and But a fair number of people have had, for all of the shots, have had a, a day or two of fevers, arm pain, headaches, feeling fluish. Uh, it's fairly common. Uh, it turns out that as unpleasant as that can be, COVID is much more unpleasant and that the benefits of getting this booster, if you have not gotten a booster for more than three or four months or not had COVID in the last three or four months, there's just no question in my mind that the benefits of getting the shot, even if you have a crummy day or two, far outweigh the downside in terms of prevention of infection, as I said, for at least a few months, in terms of significant and longer lasting prevention of severe infection, hospitalization and death, and in terms of decreasing the probability of long COVID by something like 30 to 50%. The benefits far outweigh the risk. I just, I had my uh, fifth shot uh, about a month ago, and it was about the same as my prior shots. I had really an achy arm for a day and nothing worse than that. So many people don't have very much of a bad day or two afterwards, but some people really do have a pretty unpleasant day or two. It's still worth it. Thanks, Robert, for the question. We've seen that in California, just 9% of eligible residents have gotten the shot. I think this was as of October 18th when I saw this stat. Uh, even in San Francisco, it's not as high or as, as quick as it's been in the past. Do you have any theories on why people aren't rushing to get this shot this time around? Uh, is it fear that the side effects are worse? That's kind of been something that's been... Um, you know, a rumor, or maybe it's real. I don't know. That's been going around that I've heard people say, or, or other contributing factors that the booster I, numbers are low? Yeah, I think there's a stew of, 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 you know, there's a lot of things going on here. One is that COVID is, we're in a, we're in a lull. I mean, it, it, it is um, relatively few people are dying, although still 350 people a day. It's, it's clearly not nothing. Um People are really do want to move on and not think about it very much. People feel like, you know, I've gotten four shots. How many shots do I need? And do I really need another one? People wonder and worry about this shot, which was uh, not tested in humans to the same extent that prior shots were, although there's absolutely no reason to believe that would cause any more problems than the prior shots and no reason to believe it won't work as well as the prior shots, if not better. And um, and so there and I think there there are some people who feel like I'm going to wait either till there's more information out or until there seem to be signs of a covid surge. I've heard people saying I'm going to wait until it's closer to Thanksgiving or closer to Christmas when I know I'm going to be traveling and hanging out, you know, in close quarters with family. There are a lot of reasons. And I you know, and I think there's a huge amount of misinformation out there. Hmm. You can say, you know, you'd say, well, the shots have this benefit. But then there's this risk of, for example, heart inflammation. Those are not equivalent. I mean, the benefit is that the shots have saved, you know, tens of thousands of lives. And the risk of heart inflammation from the shot, first of all, is mostly in young men, is on the order of one in 10 to one in 20,000. Almost no one has, has had a severe case of heart inflammation. And so, uh, but, you know, the social media sort of amplifies the negative and downplays the positive. To me, as a physician who spends my life thinking about the risks versus benefits of treating blood pressure or cholesterol or a stroke, there's just no question that the benefits of getting these boosters, including this one, far outweigh any very, very small risks. 
Let me go to caller Jillian in Mill Valley. Hi, Jillian. Hi there. Um, I've got two quick questions. One, what is the optimal timing for a booster after you've had COVID? Second question is, what are we learning about NOVID patients? My husband was sick with COVID for the last 10 days, and I have obviously superior immunological powers. <laughs> but um, how come I didn't get it? What are we learning? Yeah. Jillian, thanks. There. Thank you. Those are both uh, uh, both great questions. So let me start with the you know, why do some people not get it? I have not gotten it. Um, I've been moderately careful, although I've you know I've started having some indoor re- meals with people, and uh, and my wife had it. My wife had it six months ago, and I was exposed to her for a full day. First of all, uh, if someone has it in your family, there's still about a fifty fifty chance that you won't get it, and so you should. Be very careful, um, and, and there's a good chance if you isolate from each other, you won't get it. There do seem to be some genetic differences between people who have gotten it and people who don't get it. Uh, there's not enough there to sort of go to the, the bank on. So it's not like you should go out and get gene tested, and if you have a certain genetic pattern, uh, you can feel free to ditch the mask and not get vaccinated because you're you're bulletproof. That's just not the way it is. But it, there probably is some combination of how careful you've been whether you're up to date with your shots, how uh, whether you're wearing a mask, um, uh, your genetic uh, uh, immune system, your age, and just pure luck. And I think that I haven't gotten it, but I'm pull. I fully believe that it, most of it is luck. And if I happen to find myself next to someone with COVID and it's a bad day, I'm going to get it. In terms of the timing of your uh, your booster and its relationship to a prior COVID infection. Um, I treat a prior COVID infection the same way I treat a prior booster, that it gives you an immunologic, uh, uh, you know, it, 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 it will uh, bump your immunology, your immune system up, uh, and that lasts for a period of time after which it begins to wane. There's no magic about the date. I think it's a reasonable way of thinking about it is to say, if you've gotten infected and or got your prior booster, booster in the past three months, it's reasonable to wait. After three months, at that point, your uh, your immunity from either the prior infection or the prior booster has waned sufficiently that the benefits of getting the new booster outweigh the downsides. In terms of sort of other issues of timing, people say, well, I'm going to time it to have it two weeks before Thanksgiving. Uh, to me, it's sort of like an amateur trying to time the stock market. You usually get it wrong. I think if the t- best time to get it is now. And, and, and uh, you know, because while you're trying to be elegant about timing it to the exact right day, you're going to get exposed to it in a way you didn't expect, and you're going to get COVID. So if you have not gotten the booster, uh, I would get it as soon as possible, and certainly prior to a winter surge, certainly prior to big family get-togethers. Yeah, you're answering Iona's question, I think. I got my second booster in May, is what Iona writes. I'm going to be traveling over Thanksgiving and then have trips planned in January and February. When would be the best time to get the next booster? If Iona got it in May, it sounds like now uh, is when you would recommend. Yeah, today today would be the best time to get the next booster. And again, to to sort of clarify, it does significantly decrease your risk of getting COVID. It's just that that doesn't last as long, and it's not quite as good a protection as it used to be. And so we know that it lasts at least two months because the prior boosters lasted at least two months. We think it's likely to last longer because of the rejiggered booster, but we just don't know yet. We haven't seen the clinical trials to know whether it's lasting three or four or five months in terms of lowering the probability of getting infected. But the protection against getting severe infection lasts much longer than that. 
Again, listeners, you're telling us about your plans for this holiday season and how to approach what winter has in store for us related to COVID, flu, or even RSV with Dr. Bob Wachter. 866-733-6786 is the number to call. Post your thoughts on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at KQED Forum. Let me go to Charlie next. Hi, Charlie. Hi there. Yeah, thank you for this discussion. I have a comment and then a question for Dr. Wachter. I think to me, it feels pretty obvious that people aren't getting their booster because they don't feel like they're at risk anymore. And I feel like if there was better communication about the risks of long COVID, folks would understand why they still need to get their booster. Uh, There was just a study released from the uh, University of of Wisconsin and Milwaukee from the Public Health Communications Department that only 1% of public health messaging has been in regards to long COVID. And a recent poll from May said around nearly 70% of folks knew nothing to little about the condition, despite this being the most serious common outcome, um, most common serious outcome from infection. And so I feel like right now people are only making this decision thinking they only need to worry about hospitalization and death. Um, My question to Dr. Watcher is, do you think this is not being better communicated because public health officials are just worried about mass hysteria? Or do you think that they are just genuinely, um, you know, confused? Because from somebody who's been living with this condition and studying this condition, the data seems pretty cut and clear almost three years into this. And it feels like the fact that we're expecting 100 million people or whatever with with, uh, this, you know, with new infections, and that's going to be millions more with long COVID. I don't understand why we're not trying to convince that as the primary reason for people who are not high risk to get their booster right now. Uh, Charlie, thanks. I, I couldn't agree more with what Charlie's points. I, I, in the early days, you know, when we saw uh, refrigerated morgue trucks outside of hospitals in New York, I think we became conditioned to fear COVID as an acute illness that could kill you. And that's natural. That's what I thought. And, you know, in those early days when I was hiding under my kitchen table, that was the fear. Now, if you are fully vaccinated and up to date with your boosters, including have gotten the recent one, I'm 65 now, I'm therefore old enough to be at risk, but it doesn't even cross my mind that if I got COVID, I would die of it. The reason I still am moderately careful is that I don't wanna get long COVID. And I think Charlie's right, we've not done a good job in messaging that people feel like, all right, I'm not going to die of this. I can go back to living normally. Obviously, we, we all want that. And all of us are, are bone tired from all of this, don't want to think about it anymore. But what we know is if you're not vaccinated and, and, and not up to date in your boosters, your chance of getting long COVID, by which I mean symptoms that last more than a few months, is about 10, 15%. Some, of, some people are quite disabled by it. If you're fully vaccinated and boosted, your chances go down probably by about 50%. So now a one in 20 chance, you're going to have an illness that will make you feel bad three or four months from now and maybe for years. And on top of that, a lot of an emerging evidence that shows that if you take people who've had COVID versus those who haven't, the long-term risk of things like heart attacks, strokes, diabetes, is significantly higher in people who have COVID. Now, some people say, oh, okay, but I already had COVID. The problem is that's not a get out of jail free card. The second case of COVID increases your risk of long COVID yet again. 
And so this, I do think the world is different, that, that our level of fear about COVID should be lower than it used to be because your chance of dying is much lower. But it is important as you make decisions about boosters and you make decisions about behavior and masking to be realistic and understand that long COVID is real. Long COVID in some people is quite disabling and long COVID may carry long-term risks in terms of other non-infectious complications that we're going to see play out over years and years and years. And it's very personal in my house, my wife, who's a journalist and an author and spends her life thinking she's six months out. She'll dispute it when I say she has long COVID but if she works hard and thinks hard for three or four hours in the morning, she needs to take a nap at about noon. It's not disabling, but she didn't need to do that prior to her case of COVID. And she has what I would think of as a very mild case of long COVID, but she does have continued symptoms now six months out. Mm, it is very personal for you, Dr. Walker. Um, thank you for sharing. Let me go to Rachel in Sebastopol. Hi, Rachel. Hi there. Thank you. I, this is actually right in line with my question, and I wonder if you could draw some some connections for me between let's say chickenpox then becoming shingles for us later or in the case of my father he had polio and then had post polio syndrome 30 years out from that and so i'm wondering if you could continue to do a little you know glass ball projection <laughs> of what else are we imagining that people 30 years from now who had covid um, will experience. That said, I'm also, you've asked to know, are we fully vaxxed and boosted? Yes, as are all my family members that can. I'm a store owner, and from the beginning of COVID, we have um, had masks for our staff and required our guests to wear masks, and we've never stopped, and I don't see us stopping through the holiday shopping mm. season. I think it's important for public yeah. health and the health of our, um, for our staff as well, and their families. Rachel, thanks. Uh, Dr. Walter, we have about 30 seconds. Yeah, I'll just quickly make the point that, that, that post-viral syndromes are well known. There's a post-flu syndrome. As Rachel says, chickenpox, polio, they all have very different flavors. But this is well known that viruses can cause lingering effects. COVID is different though. We've not seen if there, there's the, the extent of illness and disability after flu, we've, it does not match what we're seeing in COVID. So it's reasonable to be more concerned about COVID and that does temper my, that does change my behavior. We'll talk more about behavior changes this holiday season right after the break. Stay with us. I'm Mina Kim. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary.
This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking with Dr. Robert Wachter, professor and chair of the Department of Medicine at UCSF, about what this winter has in store for us with regard to COVID and flu and, and RSV, and also whether or not you've taken the bivalent booster. You've gotten the bivalent booster shot, as it appears that some 5% in the U.S. have, about 9% in California, which has been a little bit lower relative to when the boosters came out in previous years and months. 866-733-6786 is the number if you want to call, or you can email forum at kqed.org, or you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at KQED Forum. We've got a couple of questions about RSV. Dr. Walker, Tad writes, I participated in a clinical trial for an RSV vaccine. I believe it is from Pfizer. I, understood, I understand that the trial has been very successful, and they are submitting it for approval. So could it be that we have a vaccine for this soon? Well, first of all, let me let me caveat that I'm not a pediatrician, so I'm not a huge uh, I, I'm not a font of knowledge of RSV. I have the same understanding that you do, but mostly from reading the popular media. I'm told that that they're very close to having vaccines. You know, the thing I worry about with vaccines now is all of the stuff that we've been dealing with with COVID and misinformation about COVID vaccines has lowered the uptake of all kinds of vaccines, including massively effective vaccines. For example, for 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 polio, we're seeing us a surge in polio, which is incredibly disconcerting. So part of the vaccine uh, issue now is getting out vaccines that work, but part of it is going to be convincing people again to do what the right thing to do is, which is to take them. Yeah. Uh, Sorry, just one more question about RSV here. Chris writes, I have a two-year-old son with a history of respiratory issues. He goes to daycare five days a week. How concerned should I be about RSV? And are there any steps that I can personally take to mitigate the risk? Yeah, I don't know the answer to that. In that, that uh, I would think it's sort of similar to the steps you would be taking if you can. Obviously, with a two-year-old, it's tricky to do masking. But it's a respiratory virus the same way that COVID is, gets in the same way. And so the steps would be precisely the same as the steps you took to try to avoid COVID, which obviously is difficult in a very small child. Well, we also have some questions related to masks. Alistair writes, just back from a trip to London where people are not wearing masks. I was told masks don't protect you, but will only protect others if you are COVID positive. Is there any truth in this? No. I think that was a uh, uh, something that came out early in the pandemic where people began talking about masks are mostly there to protect the other person. It's just not true, particularly once we got uh, good and fairly comfortable KN95 masks available that, uh, you know, I take care of patients in the hospital who have COVID and I'm wearing a mask and there's very little transmission of COVID from patients who we know have COVID to healthcare workers if they're wearing good masks. So the masks definitely protect you. If you're wearing a cloth mask, its level of protection is minimal and I probably wouldn't even, wouldn't bother. If you're wearing a surgical mask, it's sort of 50% protection, better than nothing, but not that much better than nothing. If you're wearing a KN94, KN95, that is extraordinarily uh, protective, if, particularly if it fits well. And that is what I wear when I'm on an airplane, when I'm in an Uber, when I go into a crowded indoor place. Um, if you're going to wear a mask, you sh- might as well wear one that's going to work. And it definitely works to protect the wearer, not just protect other people. Dr. Wachter, Governor Newsom, he announced last week that he's lifting California's COVID-19 state of emergency at the end of February. I'm curious if you think that uh, that was well taken, like that was a good idea. (laughs) 
I think it's fine. I mean, I I think that that we de- definitely have to move on from an emergency footing of, you know, that we felt two, three years ago, this thing is new. We don't understand it. We don't understand what to do. We don't have testing. We don't have treatments. We don't have vaccines. We have all of that now. And so lifting the state of emergency, which really is what gives the governor additional powers that you need in an emergency, is appropriate as we move to a new stage. And the new stage is going to be that COVID is still here. It still is going to harm people, kill some cause problems with the economy, cause problems in the workplace and schools. But the level of emergency powers and the level of emergency is lower than it was. At some point, we're going to have to do that. And so this feels like as reasonable a point as any other I can think of. The level of COVID is fairly low. We understand it very well. We have all those things. We have treatments. We have vaccines. We have masks. We have PPE. It, it should, it's not an emergency anymore, but that doesn't mean that it's not a significant problem. When President Biden declared on 60 Minutes it wasn't a pandemic anymore, my main concern about that was just the timing. To do that right as the new vaccine was rolling out, I felt like, you know, why do it now? Why not wait a few months until we're a little further along and people have gotten their their boosters? But the idea that we're moving to a new stage where this is going to be a fact of life for the foreseeable future and it is no longer an emergency, but that does not mean it's no longer a problem. I think that feels appropriate. So one of the things that I think is difficult is that if you are trying to determine how things are in California, um, Newsom, of course, cited hospitalizations and deaths, but we've also been going by the metric of case numbers. Case numbers have been harder or accurate case numbers are harder to come by because so many people are doing home tests and those numbers aren't necessarily being reported. So I'm curious, how do you, you know, you were talking, I think, at the beginning of the show about people potentially remasking again if it looks like there's uptick or case numbers are going up or whatever um that there how do we determine um how big or bad a problem covid is in california and what steps to take behavior wise if it feels like the data are getting a lot less i don't know reliable or even reported right i think that i think that you're making a very good point i would point to uh, two pieces of data that are publicly available that I think are quite helpful. First of all, uh, one that you can find very easily uh, is the number of cases per 100,000 people per day in your region. And in California today, that number is about eight. I think San Francisco is also seven or eight. This is cases per 100,000 people in the region or in the county per day. Now, as you say, that is not an accurate number, meaning it it only reflects cases that the city and county of San Francisco knows about. It doesn't know about any of the home tests that anybody does. But the the, the issue, the, the thing is, it's a, it's, it's an underestimate, but it's a relatively stable underestimate. So if that number goes up significantly, you can assume that there is more COVID in the region. And I can tell you that number right now is low enough so that I am fairly comfortable eating indoors when it's the only thing to do. But if I have a choice, I'm still going to eat outdoors. 
uh, I'm not, I, I'm going to wear my mask on an airplane, I'm going to wear my mask on public transit. If that number doubles, for example, it goes above 10 or 15 cases per 100,000 per day, I'm going to stop indoor dining, I'm going to wear my mask basically in all indoor spaces. So the point is, even though it's an unreliable number, the trend is reliable. There's nothing about the trend that will make it more biased than it is. The second number that I follow in terms of looking at the trend is the wastewater data, also easily findable on the web. And the wastewater is, you know, is the prevalence of, of the virus in sewage. And that number really doesn't depend on home testing. It depends on how much virus is in people's uh, stool. And so you can follow those two things. Is the wastewater going up? Is the cases per 100,000 per day going up? And I'd say if both of them go up, that is the measure of when you should start being more careful. Hospitalizations, death rates actually don't tell you very much about what you need to know to decide whether to wear, wear a mask. When I'm deciding where, whether to wear a mask or not, or to do indoor dining, it basically is a question of how likely is it that my waiter or my table mate or the person at the next table or my Uber driver has COVID and feels fine. And those two numbers, cases per 100,000 per day, wastewater levels, give you the best sense of is the level of COVID low enough that there's a pretty low chance that any person that I come in contact with is going to feel fine and have COVID? Or has that number gone up enough that there's a decent chance that someone who feels fine has COVID and therefore I should be more careful than I've been? Hmm. And wastewater data are pretty uh, easy to understand for the layperson. Well, they're not easy to under <clears throat> the, the the numbers are not that that easy to interpret. You can't look at a wastewater curve and say therefore the chances the person standing next to me at the Starbucks does or doesn't have COVID. But they correlate very well with numbers that are useful for that. There's a number I look at every day, which is not publicly available, which is at UCSF. We test everybody who's coming in for a hip fracture or for open heart surgery. And that number today, uh, we test them for COVID. That number today is a little over 1%. So that says in San Francisco today, there's about a one in a hundred chance that a person who feels fine probably has the virus. And that's not zero, which is why if I'm in a crowded indoor space, I will wear a mask. And if I have a choice between indoor versus outdoor dining, I will go to outdoor, but it's low enough that I'm comfortable that it's a pretty small risk that if the only the only way to have dinner with a group of family or friends is indoor, I'm okay taking the risk. If that if and and the numbers I've mentioned to follow, if the wastewater data, if the wastewater numbers go up, if the cases per hundred thousand per day go up, then I'm going to be more careful than I'm being today. A couple of comments here that are coming in. Anne writes, "It's been hard to get an appointment for the COVID booster. I have an appointment next week. I had one a month ago, but they ran out of doses the day before my appointment and had no idea when more was coming." And Travis writes, "One reason I can say from firsthand experience that more people are not getting the booster and/or the flu vaccination is availability. Why not make it simple and easy to go and get both quickly and easily? I'm a healthcare professional. I struggle to find available appointments, and my schedule is fairly flexible." For others who may not have my flexibility or my knowledge of the system, I could see how that how they would find it vexing. Do you have any sense if there's greater stability now in supply? Because I do know uh, these <clears throat> two listeners are right that they were very much. It, it was a little bit, um, you know, spotty with regard to yeah. whether or not the the vaccines were coming, and pharmacies were saying we're not quite sure when we're going to get a new shipment. Sort of seems to ebb and flow a little bit. When I got mine, I got it at a Walgreens and had to go to 
you know, drive 20 minutes out of town to, to get it. So, you know, with a little searching, I was able to find it. That's what I've been hearing from most people. I keep looking. I mean, it, the, the, the uptake is low enough that I would think there would be enough vaccine around. And, you know, if you search on the, the popular pharmacy chains, I think you can find one. The issue of whether to get your flu vaccine at the same time, perfectly safe to get both at the same time in different shoulders. I didn't when I got my COVID shot, which was in September, because I thought getting the flu shot then might be a little bit early. The flu shot tends to last for mm -hmm. about four months and flu season sometimes lasts until February or March. I just got my flu shot last week. So I think it's time now, if you're gonna get the COVID shot, go ahead and get the flu shot at the same time. And most of the pharmacy signups that I've seen allow you to, to schedule for both of you want. We're talking with Bob Walker of UCSF, and you are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Let me go to caller Anne in Mountain View. Hi, Anne. Hi. Um, thank you so much for sharing your knowledge about this. Um, I, I had COVID early in the pandemic, and I had about three weeks where I really struggled to breathe. It felt like I had to labor to breathe. And uh, I had GI symptoms that I didn't connect to that, that I thought were food poisoning. Hmm. Um, and I was first in line to get my shots, right, because I didn't want to get it again. But um, I had post-COVID symptoms. Uh, I was really unusually listless for about a year. It's like I, I didn't want to do anything, which is really unusual for me. Um, I had cardiac symptoms, um, and um, I, I have this weird symptom that I still have of my arms falling asleep and, and hmm. really hurting when I lie down. Um, and the, the bizarre thing is that when I got my second booster, suddenly all of those things got a lot better, like a lot better. The cardiac symptoms just literally went away. Um, and then, um, six months later, when I got my third shot, bizarrely, when I got the shot, the cardiac symptoms came back, but they were different. And the, wow. the, the symptoms with my arm came back. So there's two reasons that I am reluctant to get my shot, but would like to overcome my reluctance. So I'm asking for your advice. One, like some of the other uh, people who wrote in, I have had a lot of difficulty scheduling scheduling mm -hmm. it and my and my flu shot. So I'd like to I'd like it to be easier to schedule those. Um, and secondly, I feel like throughout all of this, you know, in spite of all the talk on you know, in the media about post-COVID and so forth. I see, and, and I have very good doctors, you know. They're, they're, in fact, my doctor is the one who had to convince me to go get tested for COVID, and I had a positive test, very positive test, six months and 12 months later. Uh, I didn't think that what I'd had was COVID. She identified it. So I have very good doctors, but they're not COVID experts, and they don't know what to do about the post-COVID symptoms. And I feel very much, you know, I've gone in and made sure that I didn't have permanent lung damage or cardiac damage. I felt like a hypochondriac doing it. I mean, I, there's nobody is really taking these things seriously. And um, mm. it's been very di difficult um, getting any information about how they even could be related. And mm -hmm. so I'm a little afraid. Um, it, maybe oh. it will help. Uh, I'm really suffering from these arm symptoms. Maybe it will help. But what if it gets worse and I'm on my own? Mm. So I'd and, like to know what to do about that. Oh, sorry for all that you're going through. Uh, Dr. Walker. Yeah, I mean, I'm sorry for all of that. Uh, the uh, We still don't understand long COVID very well. Uh, a lot of research going into it, a lot of federal funding for research. My colleagues at UCSF and people all over the country are, and world are trying to understand this better. It is many different diseases. And some people, it will probably turn out that you have some 
ongoing uh, virus that is continuing to replicate. Maybe the treatment will be more antivirals in some cases. It's your immune system that's still on overdrive. In some cases, there are other things going on. There is no treatment that we have found that works reliably. The the uh, the vaccines being you know useful for COVID not been proven yet. Uh, it certainly you should get vaccinated, you should get boosted to prevent another case. But as a treatment for long COVID, I, you know you hear people get better with various things. I don't doubt that you did, and then you got worse again. I think that uh, we don't know yet whether there's some impact of the vaccines. I personally continue to believe that the benefits of the boosters outweigh any downsides, including the ones you've talked about. And getting another case of COVID would be bad. It, it, people who've had long COVID, it often makes it worse. Uh, but we have a lot to learn. And the point that it's hard to find a, a doctor or a clinic specializing in long COVID Absolutely. I think the federal government's going to have to put some money into establishing long COVID centers of excellence because the the demand of, uh, you know, the number of people that have long COVID is huge. Uh, and there's and it's becoming very complex to understand, uh, you know, your average primary care doctor probably is going to be fine in treating the basic symptoms. But as there are more treatments available, more research coming out, there probably are there are going to, going to need to be specialized centers and there are not enough of them yet. Hmm. Well, thank you, Anne. This last question is from a listener with a newborn. What's the best way to keep infants healthy this holiday season? We were so relieved when my older two kids, five and three, could get vaccinated, and now we have a newborn. Staying hmm. home completely seems unrealistic. What's the risk to COVID and other illnesses, and how can we? Yeah, I, I, in some ways, I treat the, a newborn the way I would treat a you know getting together with a, a vulnerable eighty or ninety year old. The difference is the eighty or ninety year old should be vaccinated and boosted. It's, you know, making if if the people around the newborn are careful and that is wearing masks, if 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 there's any risk, testing right before getting together, a couple hours before getting together is helpful. Keeping the windows open, you know, being in a well ventilated space. If you have unvaccinated people or under vaccinated people who are at risk, you've got to do everything you can to be sure that the space is as safe as it can be. And that's things like masking and ventilation and and prior and testing prior to the encounter. Dr. Walker, always appreciate having you on. Thank you again. My pleasure, Mina. Thanks for having me. And thanks, listeners, for sharing your stories and your questions with the doctor. And my thanks to Susie Britton for producing today's segment of Forum. You have been listening to Forum. I hope you have a good rest of your day. I'm Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. This is Barbara Leslie, President of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way, from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi 
all over the house, even in my super secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite- Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. A young correctional officer. He said it was the most dangerous prison in California. Forced to make a choice. Fulfill his oath or back his fellow officers. Recognize the badge of my office. I'm Suki Lewis. From KQED Podcasts comes On Our Watch Season 2, New Folsom. A story about who gets hurt when the system that promises to keep us safe is bent on protecting itself. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts.